On today's episode, we are talking to Brian Page and Kathy Campbell, who join us to discuss evaluating the success of Aaron's Retail Learning and Development Program. We discuss taking measurement beyond spreadsheet metrics and talk about measuring the engagement of Aaron's managers in the learning process, the role of Aaron's world-class coaches, and the link between culture and learning. Let's get started. Well, I'd like to welcome listeners to the Return on Intelligence podcast, and it's my pleasure to introduce to our audience Brian Page, Learning and Development Director, and Kathy Campbell, Senior Learning and Development Analyst. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Al. Great to be here. How are you guys doing today? Doing great. Great. Super. So for our listeners' benefit, would we mind starting, you know, just talking about your background in learning and development? And Kathy, maybe we can start with you and talk about you know, what makes you two so passionate about learning and development in your retail environment? Absolutely. My background starts back in college. I was very interested in tutoring. Um, I did tutoring. I almost decided to become a teacher after graduation, but I decided to try it out in corporate America at Aaron's, and I'm so glad I did. I started out in HR here doing onboarding and spent several years as a recruiter as well. But the whole time I really wanted to get into the learning and development field and really make this my career, which I was able to join our L&D team in 2020 and have been loving the ride ever since. We're very passionate about um, the learning and development process um, of our team members. Okay, Brian, and and can, can you share some of your background for our audience? Sure. Well, I started with, with Aaron's nearly 20 years ago. It'll be 20 years next month. Um, I started in the stores, so that was that was my background. And um, I came in at a time where we had access to a live in-person training program, and they seemed intent on sticking me in every live training class that they could stick me in because I was started at a store that was a training store. And so I had a lot of exposure to that, so I immediately had an inkling, kind of a slant in my my style of managing stores toward that, toward empowering others to be successful on, on their own efforts. And I found that to be both difficult and challenging because uh, it's easier to do things faster yourself. But once uh, I matured a little bit, I realized that that's, that's not sustainable over time and um, it's a quick way to burn out. So I've then kind of shifted in toward empowering my team members and I wanted to figure out how to do that at a larger scale. And then like outside of work, um, I was very involved in, in Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts as a, as a scout leader for many, many years with my children. And uh, it just always has been a learning and then showing other people a way to learn has is, is always been something I've been interested in. That's great. And so would both of you describe, like it, it really seems to me that learning and development at Aaron's is, is really a keystone to the corporate strategy. Would, would that ring true? Yes, I think it absolutely does. Um, of course, as an L&D professional, you always want more investment and you always want more buy-in. You always want more support from the top down. But we're, we're blessed with a senior leadership team that does believe in what it is that we're doing and believes in that as an investment toward you know, longevity and sustainability because you can only run so many sales. That's only going to drive business so much. You need to invest in people over long term, and that's what really drives sustained success over time. Yeah, that's, that's so true, so true. And so if we can describe for our listeners the, the Aaron's Belt program that you've developed for your, your retail operations, uh, it's a fascinating program. I'd love to hear a little bit about the history, uh, program changes, and, and just the iterations you've made recently um, that have made it quite the success that it is. 
Yeah, um, it's had many iterations over the the eight plus years I've been part of the learning and development team. It started out as really um, a pretty massive investment of a program for an organization our size. We had field development coaches in every division of operations, and we had an incentive program based on getting people through the program. And ultimately it proved to be something that just was not sustainable just due to the sheer cost. And uh, it sort of incentivized sort of the wrong things. It incentivized graduation and getting through something and checking a box is what it ultimately ended up being. We couldn't really, we could not really argue a good ROI on that type of investment. So then we switched to something that was more virtual and self-paced, uh, you know, with an LMS being a cornerstone of that. We had some, some lofty goals and aspirations with the program to implement certain things like a demonstration of skills, but the technology just didn't really exist at the time and um, to be better than a piece of paper. So unfortunately, a piece of paper is not something that's really trackable across thousands of units of locations and, and 10,000 team members. This is not something that we could, we could pull off and implement. So uh, we had, we did have some technology improvements over that period of time where we had the ability to at least upload a document to the LMS. And we felt like, well, okay, well maybe we can use that as a workaround to have a, demo, a true demonstration of skills. And the goal with the demonstration of skills for us was to take the focus off of the consumption of content. And I know that sounds foreign, especially for learning and development professionals. We want our content to be seen. We want it to be consumed. We want every minute of it to be memorable, engaging, and fun. And while that's true, it's just not necessarily how everybody learns. Uh, different people learn different ways. I myself learn better by trying something and getting feedback. And it's really hard to do that with just a technology only type of solution. So our current iteration right now is more focused on that, is empowering the learner to learn how they learn best, knowing that we can only frame up a subject and introduce a subject through a self-paced course. And even a live virtual instructor-led course can only go so far. You can't make somebody pay attention when you're not in the room with them. Um, as much as you would try, there's outside distractions. And we have you know world-class coaches that I know Kathy's gonna talk to later, but even the best coaches in the world cannot force you to pay attention and not get distracted by something else going on your computer, answering emails or text messages or the phone ringing for you. And that's the challenge that we have within a retail type environment. Those are the competitions and the on people's attention span that we're having to deal with. So we, we really wanted to put it in, how do you learn best? You can take a course or you cannot take a course. We're not interested in whether or not you take the course. We're interested in whether or not you can do what those learning objectives are teaching you to be able to do. And we, we measure that through a demonstration of skills. Got it. So, you know, Kathy, when we talk about, you know, time being the constraint, you know, in the retail environment, obviously for training, there, there's a time constraint there. Have you guys come across like the ultimate mix of say online and instructor led or, or blended courses uh, within this belt program? Yeah, I, I don't know if I would call it the ultimate mix, but we think it's pretty good. So the way it works is when you are going through the black belt path, you start off with a study guide that tells you the topics that will be covered. And then you have three, four, five self-paced classes that are actually optional. So we do get that, um, not complaint, but objection. We do get that objection um, fairly frequently with being a retail environment of not having enough time to take the classes and that's why we made them optional and to capstone those courses with a demonstration of skill that you do one-on-one -on -one with your manager. So it doesn't matter at all to us if you actually take that self-paced 
course, you could hit the course and walk away and not learn anything, but it really matters that you can demonstrate to your manager that you know how to do the skills that were covered in the courses. Right. And, and so to me, like you're paying attention to learner background, learner styles in your approach. And, and like, did you have some failures that, that kind of were your aha moment that, that, you know, pointed you in that direction or how did you, how did you come across this, I would say fairly unique approach in, in, you know, working with your learners? Yeah, good question. Um, so we did have a previous iteration of the black belt where we had a pretest that would see how much knowledge you had already, take the courses and then take a pro a after test, post test, <laughs> um, that would show how much you learned between the two tests. But we then found that with everything being completely self-paced, people could kind of fake their way through, end up getting all the way through the program and not even necessarily know how to do basic parts of their jobs. So that's why we ended up implementing the demonstration of skill because then that shows and verifies that you do know how to do the actual skills through the program. And initially we had a lot of the courses in that previous iteration were live. And then we later adapted them to be self-paced. And we found the objection with the live course is there's scheduling, um, there's availability in the store. You have to look at the staff, the staffing in the store. It may not always be a convenient time. You've got multiple time zones that you've got to serve. And then you've got to have just a massive amount of coaching staff to be able to fulfill all those different needs across three, four time zones. So it just wasn't sustainable. We had too many people saying, you know, I, I can't get through this because I can't attend all the live classes. They're always on my day off when you teach this class. So we were at one point, we were teaching a hundred plus live classes a month. Uh, we were doing, it, it was an insane amount of courses and it just wasn't sustainable, wasn't meeting the customer where they needed to be met. And then we went to the other end of the spectrum and went all self-paced and found that, to Kathy's point, you could get through the content and, you know, you can, you can do well on multiple choice questions if you have unlimited attempts. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you know, you're really drilling down on the fact that they've consumed, you know, your content but they weren't able to really maybe practice it with competency or confidence in, in the field. Exactly. Yeah. So fast forward to current state, we try to focus the self-paced courses on things that, that can, can be well communicated in that way. Whereas I wouldn't say tell only, cause we try to make them engage and we have interaction points within the courses that we design. Uh, we do simulations whenever we, we, whenever we can build it, especially if it's like a software application, we can do lots of click driven type things where you actually have to, actually simulate your way through an exercise we do that but something where role play and feedback is paramount to the learning that's where we try to save our, our live courses for so that we can save our coaches for those those types of lessons that need that kind of engagement wow that sounds just fantastic and would you say like are you actively considering empathy in 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 the design of your courses um you know at errands I would say, yeah, um, certainly we want to be, we want to be conscious of the, the strains on attention span within the store. Um, me coming from the stores, I kind of know what that's like when, when you've got a ton of different things going on around you, you've got deadlines to meet, you've got customers to serve, you've got things that have to be done by certain times with multiple layers of management asking for these things that we know we're only going to have a certain percentage, a percentage of their attention span. So we have to make that count. Like if you're going to log into a class, We've got to grab your attention right from the get-go to the best of our ability to make it worthwhile. We want you to want to pay attention to it. So we try to do fun things. Occasionally we'll hide Easter eggs in classes that 
only if you pay attention are you going to find them and they're usually at our own expense so we try not to take ourselves too seriously and uh, we, we try to make it fun that's great absolutely yeah. and considering the empathy aspect as well is we take that feedback from our customer our customer being field operations that when we did put out a previous iteration that wasn't working that was not adopted well that they didn't like we took that feedback and built what they wanted through um yeah our, our current our current version of the black belt path is is 100 percent operator driven so we formed a steering committee we had representation from all across the business various levels of of leadership were involved but we we had everybody's opinion kind of steer it toward us it wasn't enough for us to make a recommendation Yes, we can cite a bunch of cool white papers that argue this way is the best way to learn or that way is the best way to learn, but ultimately it's only gonna have success if they feel like they've got a hand on the steering wheel and that's exactly what we position them to do so that they would have no choice but to adopt it because they helped design it. That we, To Kathy's point, we gave them exactly what they asked for, but we steered it in a, such a way that we got the efficacy that we needed. And would you say, like, do you communicate that throughout the the learning audience that, that this has been designed by your peers and leaders? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's great. Great, great strategy for sure. Um, now I'd like to switch gears here a bit and just talk about, um, you know, measurement for a second. Like we've always been at, we've all been in boardrooms where you hear that buzzword metrics that matter. And, and, uh, I'm really interested in how you measure success within this program. Um, first, maybe through stats that, that, you know, the C-suite or finance might want to see, but most importantly, how you, you yourselves as leaders are measuring success with metrics within, within the L and D function. Yeah, I think we have kind of a unique approach and, uh, Kathy has been so instrumental in help putting that together and realizing that because we wanted to have the focus be on the right things. Um, previous iterations, we put focus, like I said before, on the consumption of the training classes. How fast could you get through the belt program? Uh, did How many people could you get through the belt program? And then we try to equate that to performance results. And they were mixed. Um, like I said, we, we in previous iterations, when it was based on consumption and the difference between pre and post test scores, we found that people could attain a certain level, but not have a clue how to do what they were supposed to have learned by that point. So we try to we still look at we still look at anecdotal feedback when i mean by anecdotal feedback I, I really mean like just direct feedback from our from the people consuming the content we of course take that in consideration that's usually the thing that tells us that we need to redo a course if it's getting terrible ratings uh, but we also look at net promoter overall like a lot of companies do but the problem with net promoter by itself as a measurement strategy is it doesn't translate very well to c-suite when it comes to dollars so we still have to try and tie it back to performance. So we look at a couple of different things. We look at, um, we, we try to prove out, you know, the more people who get in a store, get to a certain point that it's worth X amount of percent of lift in certain performance categories that the company values most. We're able to articulate that very, very well and very, very clearly, and we're able to separate it from tenure. So that was the, that's the key thing, because typically when you see an increase in performance, the, the path of tenure follows the same curve. And we're able to separate those two by the way that we measure things. And then probably the most important thing, the thing that Kathy and I are probably most passionate about, and really our whole learning and development team is most passionate about, is the engagement during the demonstration of skills. Not how well the 
team member who's demonstrating their skills actually is when it comes to their proficiency, but how engaged is the manager? What kind of feedback are they leaving? How are they leveraging the technology platform to separate skill from will to, in order to create, not only create accountability, but also be able to reflect upon, you know, this is where they were at this point and this is how much they progress if they didn't get it, that, if they didn't pass that demonstration of skills on first go. So we're looking at the engagement of that manager. And the reason why that's important to us is we know that most company, our company's exit interviews data is probably not that much different than most people. We, uh, for most companies our size, we found that in our, the top 10 of most important reasons why people leave, learning was not even in the top 10. You know, the, the quality of the training program wasn't that. It's usually something around the, the engagement level of the manager or the relationship that they have with the manager. And we're of the opinion, and we're, we're proving this out, that you know, the manager that has engaged in that team member's development, the one that's truly trying to position that person to be successful and pour into them, those are not the same managers that team members are running away from. So we are looking at retention, but we're looking at it over long-term, not in short-term, like 60 or 90 days. We're going farther out than that. We wanna see the long-term impact of this because we know once people hit a certain combination of both training and development, plus reps in the real world, they just take off. And that's what we're after. So Kathy, with, with over a thousand stores and, and this measurement of management engagement, clearly that must be a challenge. Can you, can you talk about how you guys overcome that and, and do that measurement? Absolutely. So first of all, we have to make sure we are setting managers up for success to even know how to facilitate a quality demonstration of skills, which is why we host a live session with our world-class coaches at least once a week, um, specifically on that topic of how to facilitate a quality demonstration of skills. So our coaches, they welcome all managers um, who sign up for the course, spend an hour with them walking through what does good feedback look like? What should you do if your team member gets something wrong the first time? And how that good development and feedback module conversation goes. And then as far as us measuring the engagement, on the back end, we do um, look at the demonstrations of skills within the LMS to see what sort of comments, overall feedback, how long the um, managers are spending completing the demonstration of skill because it becomes very obvious if they spent five minutes or less, 10 minutes or less that they're just going through and clicking it to get off of a report. But you can tell when they spend a good amount of time, when they have good specific actionable feedback for a team member, um, within those comment sections, then we can tell that it is a good quality demonstration of skill. Okay, and then in terms of frequency, is this a continuous feedback loop? Is it quarterly? What, what does that look like for you? Yes, we do look at it monthly. We look at one demonstration of skill per store per month. And we put out the monthly numbers. We compare last month against this month if we're trending in the right direction, up or down, and um, decide a course of action from there. Great. And are you sharing this information across the stores, across regions? Like, is there some way or dashboards where, where, you know, the peers can see each other's performance in terms of engagement? Yes, we do have a dashboard that we share with our multi-unit leaders weekly. But we also make it, we publish it for the stores to see themselves as well. Yes. So Great. Great. So Brian, in our discussion so far, it, it is clear to me that the Aaron's focus on the manager-employee relationship really is cornerstone to your success here. 
uh, with this program. And so how does this impact success across the individual stores or regions and, and for the individual managers themselves? Yeah, well, I mean, our whole goal with this was to kind of turn training on its head. And what I mean by that is shift the focus away from just the consumption of training, make it more personal, directly involve the manager and empower them as a leader. We, we believe that demonstration of skills is just a very fundamental leadership competency that we need to, to not only develop, but also hone. And we need it at all levels of our management structure, not just the, the frontline store managers, but we need their, their, their supervisors to be on the same page and doing the same thing with them. So we have our general managers going through the same demonstration of skills with their next level up. We have the next level up going a level up with demonstration of skills. We're trying to really fundamentally integrate that because that's really the only way to measure if you get it is, does your boss say you got it? Because that's the one that ultimately has to hold you accountable to delivering that, that same result in a real life scenario. And when they see things that can be improved upon, we're trying to empower them as, as that coach, not only as, as a coach, but also a player coach, one that's on the field with them, one that has instant credibility because they're, they're not only showing you how to do it, but they're also doing it. They're modeling the behavior that they're asking you for. What are your thoughts on how this relationship impacts your store cultures? Essentially, the demonstration of skill really builds the store culture because it starts from the top down. When the manager sets that expectation that, okay, show me that you know how to do the skills, but also it's okay to make a mistake. The demonstrations of skills are designed where if a team member doesn't know something the first time, that's a coaching opportunity. It's not, you're not gonna get in trouble. There's no reprimanding or anything like that. It's a culture of learning and of true development. It's okay to make mistakes and learn how to do better. So I think it builds that great team developmental culture within the stores. So to kind of piggyback on that, this is not this is not a cultural shift that happens overnight. It's really, in our company's no exception, it's a bit like turning a battleship in a bathtub. It takes time, it's incremental, and it takes a long time to get folks on board. Um, it's, not a, it's not a culture that happens overnight. It's one that has to be kind of developed. It, it doesn't happen quickly. Um, it's one that has to, it has to start with, with senior level leaders to, to buy in, and that's, those are things that require a lot of engagement and a lot of belief. And you have to hear the message over and over again. So it can take years to kind of get there. And I feel like as a company, we're, we're still in that transitional phase where it's starting to catch fire. And we have to continue to, to reinforce that and to make that culture be as widespread as we possibly can, not just have it in pockets here or there. We have to have it be consistent if we want it to have the overall result that we know it's capable of. So it takes a lot of patience and a lot of determination to just see it through and not to look for a quick fix. Cause this is, this, this methodology is not a, it's not a flick of a switch to just light up the, the whole company. It's not going to work like that. It takes time. Right. And, but I, I have to say, it's very admirable that at Aaron's it, it's obvious to me that you guys see a link between culture and learning and development and this employee manager relationship, like they're all linked and. And it sounds to me like it's being, uh, it's very successful. I'd like to go back a bit on, on the demonstration of skills for a second here. We, we interviewed Devin Hasty of Anheuser-Busch um, recently, and, and he spoke about the difference between confidence and competence. And would you say the, the observation checklist work you do or the demonstration of skills, like what, what are your thoughts with regards to uh, confidence and competence roles at Aaron and 
how, you know, your demonstration of skills is really pushing this to the forefront. So the way we have it set up within the structure is we kind of have a study guide that Kathy mentioned that kind of gives a preview of everything that's going to be covered in that demonstration of skill. And we try to show people that this is kind of like a menu of things. So if you're looking at that study guide, okay, I'm, I feel confident about this, that I have this competency. I don't necessarily feel the same about this one. So what tools and resources do I have to, to get that, that confidence and that competence up before I trouble my manager to demonstrate my skills to them? So they can then pick and choose, okay, I'm gonna take this self-paced course on this thing that might be an area of opportunity for me, or I'm gonna go read this piece of literature on that, or I'm gonna go practice this activity until I feel like I've gotten it with the feedback from my peers. So I think the, the separation of confidence and competence, I don't know that there's a ton of separation, me personally. I feel like when you're confident, you can be confident about things that you're not confident at, true, but when you are competent at something and you know it and you've been getting that feedback through that demonstration of skills, you're, you're getting confirmation and that gives you the confidence that you do know what it is that you're doing. But before you even get there, you're, you're getting reps in real time that has helped building you toward that. And then the demonstration of skill is just a validation that you've gotten there with that particular skill or maybe there's something else that you need to brush up on a little bit more in order to get past and go to the next task. I think that when it comes to competence, it could be that you have taken all the courses and in your head you know all of the knowledge, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you feel confident going to take your first payment because you've never done it before. So it's good that we have the role play set up and the demonstration of skills where you role play your first payment and then your manager gives you that in-person validation. Yes, correct, you know how to do it right. That's gonna boost your confidence when it comes to going to take your first payment and every payment after that, you know with confidence that you're doing it correctly. Yeah, this is this is fascinating. I, I really believe, you know, through our discussion that you guys mentioned turning training on its head, but you know, this demonstration of skills is is really key to that. And I think it's a unique approach. I think some folks um, that I've spoken to in the past, they certainly work on demonstration of skills, but not to the extent that you're doing it in your belt program. And I think it's uh, very admirable, and I bet it's very successful once you see a, uh, a store employee who confidently demonstrates the skill sets that you're after. I can only imagine how effective and confident they are in front of an actual live customer. So, Kathy, let's talk about the belt program a bit more. Um, is the strategy more of an onboarding strategy? Is it a longer-term focus? How do you blend that strategy and, and, and just let's speak to the listeners about your overall strategy of your Black Belt program? Yeah, good question. Our Black Belt program is designed to be a hire to retire program. So everyone starts out in white belts, the same um, content for every position. It's just basic new hire things you need to know about the company and what it's like to work here. And then beyond that into the higher belts, it's customized by position. So you'll get different content based on your role with the company. And then a little bit higher up, you kind of learn a little bit of cross training up through red belt. And then at purple belt is where you get to prove how well you can apply the skills that you've learned to prove that you can perform well in your job. And then beyond that, we have. Yeah. So the, the, the way we we want it to be kind of a hire to retire kind of program, something that grows with the team member's career. 
So in addition to the onboarding that, that typically happens at the beginning of any kind of training program, getting them fired up and, and happy that they joined the right company, seeing that not only in their store, but also seeing it across company culture as represented by our coaches that uh, facilitate some of the live onboarding content, then getting the position specific training that you talked about, and then learning about other functions in their store that they may be asked to do. That's really kind of the destination for every team member. So once, once they get past all the position specific content, then it's purely voluntary after that. They choose to embark upon those next things that get them ready for their next position. And one of those is being proficient in their role, not just being competent, but being proficient, meaning that they have to actually lead the company and performance metrics that are relevant to their position within the store. And they have to do that over an extended period of time of at least 90 days. And it's not easy because uh, they have uh, several different metrics that they're looked at that are relevant to their individual role. Some roles are more challenging than others because of the sheer number of metrics that they have to hit. Um, but we want to reward those that actually put forth the effort to not only demonstrate to their manager that they can do it, but also raise the performance of the store and their peer group around them. So once you've learned how to do it, you've shown that you can do it through the beginning stages of the belt. Now it's, this is the belt where you prove it, that you can do it over a sustained period of time. So once we've identified those who can do it, well, now we want to be able to teach you how to teach others to be able to do it. So this is kind of, this is where we're in our design phases right now with another steering committee building out this next level, which is purely about taking that person who has identified that they are a top performer and how can they replicate that and get other new team members to that same level of proficiency faster and easier. Um, so we're pouring in leadership competencies to that individual because we believe the development of others is probably the most fundamental indicator of a successful manager. And that's what we want to hone and develop first. And then the funnel kind of narrows a little bit further. Those that get through that particular stage then get directly prepared for their next role, whatever that might be in the stage that comes next. And that's where we continue to build on the, the, the precedent that we made with leadership competencies, but also depending upon what position they are aiming for, we introduce some tactical lessons that are going to be specific to that role that they're trying to be prepared for, competencies that they need to know, like, do I need to know how to read a P&L? Um, do I need to learn how to manage others from a multi-unit leader position, or do I need to be able to do it within a set of four walls? Those types of things. So we focus in on a lot of the, the tactical things that are unique to our business, as well as the leadership fundamentals that are key and true regardless of how of any type of people leader, they need to have these skills. So we focus on both. And so when we, when we're focusing on, on these skill sets, what kind of blend of virtual versus instructor led training, maybe if we speak about the, the early belts versus the late belts, is there a different blend there? And how do you approach the instructor led training piece of your business? Yeah. So like I said, we try to focus the the live virtual instructor-led classes where it has the most impact. So we have uh, both live in-person training where we actually bring people into the building and we train them in a centralized location. And that's more reserved toward work workshop type scenarios where we're really trying to install leadership competencies and be able to validate it in order to send them off on the next thing that they need to learn. Um, but for the you know, for the, the bulk of our, our learners, their, their exposure to our coaches is gonna be through a virtual live instructor-led class. Like I said, we try to, anything we can communicate successfully through a self-paced class or build out a simulation around it in a self-paced class, we do that. Where it's fundamental that they have repetition and feedback, that's where we try to save our coaches' attention to focus on those key areas. You can't like 
really do a good role play on a self-paced class for sales. You need to, you need to have some live, some live reps and that's where our coaches come in. Absolutely. Absolutely. And to build upon what Brian just said, we really have the best of the best world-class coaches here at Aaron's. They get our team members excited about the work that they have to do in a store and working in a retail store is exciting, but like really excited about it. They get those reps in, they give quality feedback. And it also gives the team members opportunities in the chat box to chat amongst themselves a little bit and see what shout out from Chicago, Texas, all over the country and US and Canada have that collaborative learning almost um, that the, our coaches can facilitate. And so to stay on the coaches theme, um, can you talk about what makes your uh, coaches so successful? You call them world-class coaches and, and talk to me about their backgrounds, their tenures, their experiences. How have you been so lucky to get such great coaches on your team? Well, first of all, the coaches kind of, they, they made themselves very evident that they were the right people. Like they were unavoidable. They were just shining. Like they were, they were definitely the shiny object and just like, I need that person. I need that person. Um, and you know, one of our, our most tenured coaches, coaches got here long before I did and is still here and is one of the, probably one of the most engaging people you could ever meet, but also very, very empathetic. Our coaches have the ability to connect with their audience more so than I would say 99% of all people. That's just what they do. That is their talent. That is their passion. And that is what they do best. So we try and we try and position them to do exactly what they do best, and they just nail it. And I can't say enough great things about them because I wish I could be as good a facilitator as they are. <laughs> I mean, I really do. They're they are that good. They're that engaging. They get people fired up, ready to run through a wall by the time they're done with a live class. It's just I don't know where else you go to get something like that. It's it's uh, it's something that's very very unique, and you can't teach it. You either, you either have charisma or you don't. You have the ability to empathetically connect with your audience or you don't. You can inspire that, but these guys are just, they're just incredible. Yeah, and to, to speak to their backgrounds, we're so lucky. We have these coaches from within errands. We didn't go out looking for coaches. We didn't hire coaches from other places. These were people who know the errands business, who have experience in other areas of business, whether it's service centers, recruiting, um, home solutions centers. They have that experience of dealing with our customers, of dealing with other team members, and that knowledge background brings so much than hiring a coach from outside or using third-party coaches. Having them within and having that deep knowledge of errands really builds upon what they, that base level of charisma that they already bring to the table. Yeah, it's, it's instant credibility because they can go, they can go and talk on the team members language. They can talk in experience. They can't talk in, they don't have to talk in theory like a third party coach might have to from the outside that's not done the job. So our coaches have done the work. I've done the work, Kathy's done the work. Everybody in our team has done that. So I think that's probably a unique part of our success in that regard is just having that credibility because we've, we're, we've, we've been there and done that with them and they know it. Well, it really sounds like you've got a group of rock star coaches, but does that create any challenges for you um, in terms of, are there opportunities where you might need to bring, bring in third-party coaches or are you guys self-sustaining with, with your own internal group? No, I, th I, think it's, I think it's difficult to say when the right time is I think the biggest thing is is if you've been if if our team has been on a subject for a long period of time 
and it's just not sinking in. Sometimes familiarity with the, the person delivering the message isn't enough. Like you can, yes, I've heard this before. I've heard this before from you. Sometimes it adds credibility or validation to what we're, to the message we're trying to deliver. If an expert from outside also comes in and says the exact same thing, but maybe in a different way, or maybe with a different set of credentials to back up their credibility that makes a light bulb shift. I think that's, in, that's different for individuals. I think some people are going to connect with our coaches right out of the gates. If we see some resistance to it, we, we have to, we try to, first of all, self-examine what's our approach. Why is it not working? Uh, could we benefit from somebody else, an outside expert coming in to deliver the same message and then us back them up and support them? Does it require more, more buy-in vocally from senior leaders? Like saying, hey, this is, this is the direction we're going. This is why. Because sometimes we find ourselves being um, communicators more so than coaches at, at times. And we're not necessarily always the right person to deliver the message first. The precedent sometimes has to start from above and then we kind of we reinforce and uh, rally around that. So we, we look at all those different things. So it's, it's, there's not like one right, one size fits all solution. It, it just varies on what, what it is we're trying to do. Yeah. For me, I, I honestly, I would uh, refer to that as injecting fresh air to the conversation. And, and uh, in my role at Absorb, I, I, I did a lot of sales enablement training and, and often we'd bring in outside coaches and you could just see the light bulbs going off. So uh, it, it just felt healthy to, to mix in my word, fresh air. Um, it's like being that 14 year football coach, right? The message sometimes gets a little boring to your staff and, and you can inject some life by just bringing in some inside outsiders, uh, to the inside group. And, and, uh, as I mentioned that fresh air thing, it, it, it works. So I was just curious on, doesn't sound like you're having to do that right now with, uh, the, the team that you have. So, um, that's just fantastic. So Brian. I want to talk about your steering committees again. I'm just really curious at Aaron's how you communicate the success of your learning and development, how you're gathering feedback and driving the next iterations of change. Well, I think it's when things aren't working, we're most likely to get re recommendations on what to do differently. So we try to really kind of get ahead of that. And it's, it's one of those things where if you put together a large group of people in a room to try and decide on something, it's going to take longer time. It's, it's just, it just is, you move a little bit slower, but the results are usually more long lasting uh, when you have a diverse group of ideas and thoughts around a particular area. So that's, that's kind of our, our strategy. We want, we want to bring every, every operating division within our organization to the table to have representation in that steering committee. But as far as how we recruit the individuals from there, we, we, depending upon what the topic is, we'll have a different steering committee for whatever project we're working on, if it warrants it. Um, because we want the people that are most passionate about the subject to be involved because then we're not going to have to pull ideas out of them. Uh, they're going to have a ton of strong opinions on those subjects. And that's what we're looking for. And we're looking for ones that maybe not, that don't necessarily align with our recommendation because we know if that is, if that's one person feels that way, the chances are we're going to have more objections that are similar if we were to deploy something without taking that into consideration. And many times it, it changes our mind when we give them an opportunity and we give them the platform to speak about it. And it, it really proves more beneficial. And it's, it's, just, it's just more successful when you go to roll something out if all those things have been considered thoughtfully and um, the design is built around that so that it can be adopted much more easily. And so with the steering committees, 
is it kind of a standing term or are they as needed? And how do you recruit folks, you know, from the different business units? How much leadership is involved? I'm just curious about how you, you know, kind of recruit those, those steering committees. Well, it depends largely on the audience um, that, the, that the content is going to be aimed at or the program is going to be aimed at. But we try to get several different levels of leadership involved from the store manager to the multi-unit leader. And sometimes even our, our divisional vice presidents are invited to participate in those. So we largely do this as needed um, when we have something that's critical to our program that needs to be developed or if we need to review something that's critical. So that's that's pretty much our strategy. Um, we do have feedback and we open ourselves up to feedback and engagement with our, our leadership team just constantly. We're constantly making ourselves open to that. So we don't need to necessarily have that on the day to day because we really kind of cultivate that that culture of if it's not working, you need to tell us so we can fix it. And we're, we've demonstrated that like very, very practically that we listen and that's become something that's understood. And they know that if they reach out to myself, to any member of our team, Kathy, anybody, that they're going to not only see a result from that, but they're going to be heard and they're going to, they're going to have their situation taken care of. So, um, we don't need it for necessarily for the day to day, but whenever we do something that's critical, we do form those up. And uh, like I said, we, we look for diversity of thought when we do that. And we look for several different layers of leadership to be involved with that as well. So we have pretty much all the different perspectives that are gonna be participating in whatever it is that we're building in that room, helping us build it. Yeah, so really full spectrum then. Yep, fantastic. Well, I, I really wanna thank thank you both for, for joining us today. Um, you know, from our discussion, it, you guys are so passionate about your learning and development. You've created this well-rounded, energetic, and sophisticated program. But I'd like to kind of circle back to the beginning and, and just ask you, both of you, if you have any advice for our listeners in terms of evaluating success in their own programs. Yeah, good question. I think when it comes to evaluating success, First, you have to have engagement to even have anything to evaluate. So hearing from your customer, from your end user, what do they want from a learning program and implementing that. Also, I would advise having different types of learning options available because everyone learns differently. They could be more studious and follow a study guide or they could be more hands-on and need the hands-on reps. They could benefit more from a live instructor giving them feedback in the moment. So having those various options of learning styles and types to get through the program is definitely recommended. And then as far as measuring that, you have to hear back from them after they have taken the training. What is the net promoter score on the training? So I think to, to kind of piggyback on that, it's, it's about being well-rounded in your approach. So in addition to net promoter and then the anecdotal feedback that comes from the participants as they complete training, all that is super important. We have to be able to communicate that and we have to be able to communicate it as far up as it needs to go and as many eyes that can see when something positive happens. I think we also have to be open to negative, negative feedback too, so that helps us inform when we need to make changes and improvement and be open to that. Because if it's not working, pushing harder isn't gonna make it work any better. And that's I think what we've taken from our measurement strategy is that it, we've had iterations that didn't work and we've had to go back to the drawing board. We've had to been open, open to do that and being willing to be humble to go back and do that. But we also have to be able to strongly articulate when something is working to different types of audiences. Some people and our leadership team are going to respond most to net promoter score. We're like, what are the people saying? That's great. 
And then, you know, our CFO may have a different conversation. Like we need to be able to articulate its impact in terms of the actual business. You know, we've been very, very fortunate in having that broad spectrum of, of our approach and trying to cover as many of those bases as we can. And I think the one that resonates the strongest with me is, you know, one of the, we look at several different performance key indicators across our business because we're, we're a little unique in that we're not only a retailer, but we're also a first party debt collector. And those two things are very much intertwined in, in our business. And you can't really be successful in one without, without impacting the other. And what we've seen is with, with our data, when we get more people through the program with quality, and this is how we separate uh, just consumption or progress within the training program from quality progress, that's the demonstration of skills piece. That's the missing link for us is being able to articulate and being able to separate progress from tenure. So we're able to do that. And when we see that, we can say, you know, getting through the training is gonna get you so far. We've seen as much as in, in some areas of our business, upwards of 300 basis point lifts by just having a team that's 100% at this level of the training program. And then we see incremental increase when the demonstration of skill score is even higher. So we can see, okay, this training by itself is gonna get you this far, an engaged manager that's administering the training is gonna get you this much further. And that's, uh, that's pretty impactful. So 300 basis points in some areas, we've seen 500 basis points in others. So it's, uh, it's a good, it's a good waiting art. It's a good way to close and drop the mic and walk out of a room. <laughs> well, congratulations on that. Those are meaningful metrics, I'd have to say. And uh, I want to thank you two so much. Kathy, Brian, thank you for joining us today. I, I really feel that you guys have developed a dream team at Aaron's in terms of your learning and development. So continued success uh, on that front. And again, thank you for joining us. Thank today. you.